The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hey, it's Monday morning, everyone. You're watching Squawkbox on CNBC, and these are your headlines. Sam Altman's hopes of a return to the helm of OpenAI are seemingly dashed following a series of last-ditch talks with former Twitch boss Emmett Shear reportedly set to be appointed as interim CEO. Elsewhere, the equity rally rolls on, signs of cooling inflation pushing all three U.S. majors higher for a third straight week, whilst the Japanese Nikkei 225 touches a 33-year high before pulling back slightly. UK Chancellor of the Exchequer Jeremy Hunt pledges not to announce any inflationary tax cuts in Wednesday's autumn statement, but says the government needs to show there is a path to a lower tax economy. I want to bring down our tax burden. Uh, I think it's important for a, a productive, dynamic, fizzing economy right. that uh, you motivate people to okay. do the work, take the risks that we need. US, Israeli and Hamas negotiators reportedly close in on a deal to pause fighting in exchange for the release of hostages from Gaza as the death toll in the enclave tops 13,000. Argentina turns to the right, electing libertarian Javier Millet as its new president, with the new head of state pledging economic shock therapy. We have the determination to put the fiscal accounts in check. We have the determination to fix the problems of the central bank. We have the determination to put Argentina on its feet and move forward. OpenAI co-founder Sam Altman will reportedly not return to lead the tech startup, despite a weekend of negotiations over his future after he was ousted by the company's board on Friday. Bloomberg, The New York Times and The Information are reporting that Emmett Shear, co-founder of video streaming site Twitch, will lead the company. Investors have pushed for Altman to be reinstated, according to people familiar with the matter, while a large number of employees express support for him online. Altman shared an image of himself wearing an OpenAI visitor badge on the social network X yesterday, saying it was the first and last time he would wear one. Arabile, you've been looking at the story as well. Uh, this is huge for the markets, in my view. Yeah. It's an $80 billion company. While it's still private, it has huge tentacles to many listed public companies. The big ones, of course, being Microsoft and Salesforce. And it seems that, uh, according to word on the, on the street, then that actually... It is Microsoft itself that it was also trying to lead uh, to, to try and have Sam, uh, Sam Altman back at the company then as well then uh, as CEO. Quite significant, of course, because this is somebody who co-founded the company but was ousted on Friday uh, by four of the six board members, uh, while the other, they being Greg Blockman, not actually participating in uh, this boardroom coup. And in fact, uh, also then resigning as president uh, of OpenAI then on Friday as well after the news. Uh, a new CEO or interim CEO was then put in charge then uh, who then held the position. But it seems that early this morning we've also gotten uh, word of a few changes then at OpenAI as well. Now negotiations had seemingly been in place 
for uh, Sam Altman to return to the business. This was led by a few investors uh, as well as companies that have been involved with OpenAI for quite some time. Let's remember that, of course, at the top end, OpenAI is still a charity, actually, while it does have a capped profit uh, segment of its business, which is aimed at trying to lure in as many um, qualified and really great uh, people to be able to advance um, its hopes to, to create open AI as it is and really enhance artificial intelligence overall. Um, lovely to see you both this morning. Uh, I, I thought I'd start off by completely and utterly agreeing with both, disagreeing with both of <laughs> you. I beg your pardon. Uh, you said, Karen, your opening comment was, this is huge for markets. Mm -hmm. Quite frankly, I don't think most markets give a damn about Mr. Altman. There you go. I think Microsoft cares about it from their open AI point of view. I think people in open AI care about it. But I think in terms of for the rest of the market, I think it's bordering on the irrelevant. I don't get me wrong. I think it's salacious. I think it's a juicy story. I I think everyone's trying to work out and I have read honestly so much copy trying to work out what's going on but we seem we still don't know about what consistently candid means what the terminology from the, hold bear with me I know you're gonna come back at me very hard I know that I'm ready for it We're but but but, but but this <laughs> and, and you're very welcome to I wouldn't go there if I didn't expect you to this is the beauty of scorebooks but but the point is this is a gentleman who has set up a board structure which now it appears again from all the reading that I've tried to do as well I know you guys have done voraciously as well is it's his activities appear contrary to the point about it being broadly a not-for-profit company. This is a gentleman who is trying to raise, we understand, according to one of the pieces of copy I was looking at, $100 billion to establish a new microchip development company to compete with NVIDIA and TSMC. It's a gentleman who has a nuclear fission company called Okio, or Oklo as it, uh, also trying to launch a device company as well. Do we not think, for uh, uh, if he's the CEO of a not-for-profit, which is ostensibly a not-for-profit, he, he seems slightly distracted. Well, to your point of what you just fleshed out, this is why it is so significant for markets. Number one, in terms of uh, what the market moves have been, what Magnificent Seven mega cap stocks, 73% return for the year. Of those Magnificent Seven, some of the big ones are very much at the forefront of AI. Absolutely. For instance, Microsoft. So what happens to Microsoft's new AI strategy? I mean, what happens to that of big investments where it's pivoted its entire workflow around the AI model? Big question mark around that. You just mentioned the potential challenge challenger here in terms of Altman focusing on some sort of chip challenger to NVIDIA, another massively moving stock for the markets. He's been in the Middle East for weeks trying to, to rally billions behind this new investment. So, so not working on open AIs, exactly. not for profit. He's been in the Middle East for weeks trying to raise money for other investments. Exactly, for, the, for this chip challenger. Okay. And from Mr. Masayoshi-san as well, I understand. Yes, which would be TPU chips that would right. challenge the, the GPUs and the CPUs that a lot of the market is focused on. So, so again, another huge... Well, well, the point of whether it's distraction or not is not a, an issue. If he comes up with something... But if he comes up with something that is massive, well, this could challenge NVIDIA. How many companies could you two run? Well, it depends. Right? Depends on what their aim well, is. I mean, you know, you've already mentioned that AI it, is the biggest thing since hold on, let's, bread. We, How many of those remember, type companies could you run? But let's remember, if all of them are aimed in that similar space, because while he mm. might be looking for right. a chip company, yeah. that similar chip company space. is still so how many in, companies in the Bill advanced Gates run when he was AI. setting up Microsoft. But it's in the advanced How many companies did Zuckerberg run when he's doing meta platforms? No, who knows, actually? How many how companies other, did Bezos run when he was doing Elon Musk. Elon Musk has hardly been unsuccessful aspects. running multiple companies. He's run three major companies at the same time. Right. 100%. And they're all still working out. So the main aim here... Are they all still working Well, as much as he'd like them to. Are they? How did that space rocket go this week? To what he believes. I mean, I know that 
they made progress because it got to the splitting up stage. I followed that one as well, so, yeah. So okay. the question becomes, is Sam Altman the main reason we've been given, right? How, that we all kind of known is candid. Right? X, X going well, I mean, is it? Still has, How's that one it, going? Has, it is still the biggest, second biggest uh, social media platform, right? No, it's Outside not. of Facebook and... Uh, uh, and so and we're near the it. second biggest social media platform on the planet. Well, it still continues it's to grow. It's got about 250 million it users. It still continues to grow. And unfortunately, yes, we may, not growing advertising. We may question. Not growing oh, advertising. No, it is definitely losing advertising. Okay. But that splits us from the point, right? Because the well, point well, is that what, The point Altman, is he bought a 40 or billion dollar company. No, the, no, the point is Sam Altman. We're not talking about Elon Musk, actually. Okay, the point here is that Sam Altman wasn't candid in his conversation. Is it? Because we what, don't know. That's what we, we don't know. know. No, that's but the... that's, that's what we've been given, right. right? And if it's not being candid, it means that you haven't offered the board enough communication. That doesn't necessarily mean you're, not dis you're distracted. It may just mean you've been working and haven't actually given the board all the responses they've needed. Right. So, Which is something entirely different. But to the point as to why it's market moving, we've got three massive areas here that's impacted the Magnificent Seven. Number one on chips, which NVIDIA has been had, having a huge play in. The other is when it comes to what the open AI does with the software yeah. and individual training models of companies. And the other final piece around this consumer device that you've just mentioned, this could be a, a, a factor that upsets the likes of Apple. What, what, I don't know what consumer it, device it is. It could be a consumer <laughs> device. It could be heated AI. hair rollers, which is lost on me, of course. Yeah, but it could also be uh, the equivalent of a smartphone that could crunch uh, the data using 100%. AI, yeah. so which could disrupt the likes of Apple. So if he is successful, I think he is seen as the man that holds the keys to AI, which is why Masayoshi Sun has been on the phone to Sam Altman every yeah. other day. The man who was also behind in the AI yeah, race see, I, is, I, is playing catch up. So there I think is no one individual that holds the keys to AI. But he's seen as being at the forefront of, of knowing where to yes, go. So and the most of the market's trying to work out so what early. to do with AI. So to, to me, there is a, a huge fallout for the markets I agree. from each point that he's trying to touch here Very across the Very interesting to see then what yeah, NVIDIA you know, says later in the week as well. <clears throat> well, I, look, we all care about Fed minutes, uh, uh, but if we're talking still on equity front, I think NVIDIA this week will also be very significant. Yeah. They come out with their earnings and their estimates. And you, you never know, well, they could perhaps share, share do, some do, insights on this But to your point around the Fed minutes, the problem that you've seen on the markets at this stage is that you've had a lot of disruption yep. around the monetary policy cycle. What stood alone separate from that has been this disruptive cycle of AI. So the market has pushed bets on AI yeah. while they've been concerned about other investment plays, risk on event plays because of monetary policy. I think that's why it's such a big standalone story and what mm. Sam Altman brings <laughs> to this very disruptive segment of the market is quite key. This is very similar to back to 2008, where you had the disruption of the FANG stocks, which was very separate to the recession monetary policy side on the other side. I think the market has viewed it differently, which is why, for me, it is significant what plays out from here. Yeah, unconfirmed, but he might not be returning as CEO. So uh, we'll see how that fares. Love the conversation. <laughs> Love just prodding you two and watching your vociferous reaction. But that's how we start the show. Perfect. That's what we do here. Right. Thank you very much, both of you as well. And for more on uh, what the turmoil at OpenAI could mean for the future of artificial intelligence, check out CNBC.com. Uh, as I say, we, we, we have a vigorous discussion, debate off air about which stories we put top and we've just done it on air as well but the other stories I'm more interested in as you lot know by now is what Karen's about to do next. Yeah there's a big focus I think of the markets this week on Fed minutes it's the only data point we're getting but also when it comes to what we're seeing from Nvidia stocks so again the twin themes really play out monetary policy versus AI. The markets into the Friday session slightly higher on the S&P 500 up just over a tenth of a percent. Big sectors in play 
energy stocks bouncing back. Communication services actually somewhat left behind, which is why we didn't see a breakout on the Nasdaq over the course of the trading week. Stunning performance, 2.4% on the Nasdaq, fairly decently 2% on the Dow. For sectors, it was real estate. And that sensitivity we're talking about, the marketplace around interest rates, very much coming into the equation, which is why you saw the interest rate segment of real estate being one of the top performers for the markets last week. Treasuries as a result. Uh, let's just take a look at uh, what the markets did. And you can see that 10-year, we're now perched below the 4.5% mark. We've given up territory thanks to the CPI. Other data points too, and 4.45 where we're perched, 4.88 at the two-year. In terms of what the market's now looking at, we are, of course, gazing ahead to see what the consumer does. There were indications over the past week with retail sales numbers, with a bunch of individual company reports for earnings season, that consumer behaviours have changed. And that is a another contributing factor to the Fed. But uh, this week we've got Black Friday, the market's got a, a holiday shortened trading week and they're, they're looking to see what those patterns look like around a big promotional event. So that is what's key for markets. As we get going across to Asia, the uh, trade is mostly firmer, you've got to say. Shanghai modestly up, Australia slightly in the green. Bigger gains on the Hong Kong market, 1.7%, nearly 300 points to the upside. And across in Japan, we've got a fade. We're down about six-tenths of a percent. There has been uh, some weakening of that US dollar, which of course uh, means the uh, Japanese yet has actually picked up some steam, trading around the 149 handle. Now, on a quick programming note, don't miss our US colleagues' interview with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. That is coming up at school, on Squawk Box at 1400 CET. Super duper, Karen. Thank you. Right. Oil is nudging higher this morning after, a, wow, what a whipsaw week it was. Rising US inventory levels and fears of a slowdown in demand from China help push the oil into bear market territory and raise expectations OPEC plus may need to deepen supply cuts in order to shore up the prices. But uh, big rally towards the end of the week, though. Amrita Sen, the founder and director of research at Energy Aspects, is one of my go-tos of people who actually know what's going on in this market. Amrita, lovely to see you as ever. Um, that was a hell of a week. Actually, I looked for the week and actually Brent was only down 1% for the week. But my goodness me, what a ride. What do you think is going on? Good morning to you. Good morning. Um, sorry I couldn't come in person. Um, I think one of those crazy weeks, like you say, I think positioning is a huge, huge part of what's going on. We always see this. Remember in November, Thanksgiving, uh, liquidity dries up. And we have seen this for the last, I think, five years now. Massive, massive pullbacks. And then we do stabilize eventually in December. I don't think it's any different year end uh, book squaring. But also, I think higher interest rates are making matters worse because we have a lot of inventory management uh, happening kind of at year end by refiners, by physical uh, oil traders. And right now, with the higher interest rates, nobody wants to hold any inventory. So I think we're seeing more destocking as well. All of that combined, you know, in uh, fundamentals, yes, they are weaker seasonally. But they haven't weakened to the point where we should go from $97 to $77 in Brent, right? Like that, that's just happened over a matter of a month. Marita, oh, so many questions. I'll pick up on destocking, actually, because one of the reasons why people said oil went up earlier in the year was the fact that the Chinese were stocking all kinds of stuff, including SPRs and what have you. Now, again, but also I've read from the likes of Goldman's and others about the great destocking in a whole host of different commodities as mm -hmm. well. Uh, and that's why we've seen some interesting price movements there as well. Just what's the latest on your view on Chinese demand? Really simple question. Yeah, I was there last week, uh, just got back. And I think what's amazing there is that A, demand is fine. I think in the West, when we look at China, we focus too much on the PMIs, um, at least for oil. 
It's far more consumer-driven today post-COVID with gasoline and jet doing very, very well. Even petrochemical producers we met with, you know, uh, housing market isn't great and petrochemical margins are really weak. But they were very clear in saying demand is actually okay, inventories are low, but it's the overcapacity uh, that has been built up that's driving a lot of this. In, they, China themselves have been destocking about six to 800,000 barrels per day on the crude side, but that's from the commercial side of things. SPR, they were buying it, then they paused it during the rally. We understand after the trip that they are, they've restarted buying it. So, but the SPR volumes aren't that big, Steve, about 20 million barrels, give or take, by March of next year. So that's at the margin. But of course, it helps, right? Because you are going to see more Chinese buying in the coming months, a little bit at least, you know, support to Dubai, supports Brent. Amrita, can we talk about the links to the monetary policy cycle? I mean, typically high oil prices precede a recession. And now we're talking about a lower oil price as the market contends with a slowdown. How do we see the linkages between the two going into 2024? I'll say all historical correlations, Karen, have completely broken down. I mean, that's one of my biggest headaches as an analyst. Uh, none of those old uh, relationships hold, partly probably because, you know, we've had 10, 12 years of zero interest rates and now it's higher. For a lot of businesses, this is new. Um, and I think one of the key things you're seeing in oil is that it tends to price in any of these macro fears quicker than any other asset classes. And to your point, I mean, A, oil demand, again, slowing, but it's still growing. Um, we've seen some outperformance in non-OPEC supply. I think that's one of the reasons why we've come off a little bit. But none of this suggests that A, either, like, you know, or none of the data suggests that we are going into a deep recession. Our uh, view is that we will be in a mildish recession in the OECD. U.S. included. Our demand numbers reflect that. Um, but, you know, just the way the market's trading, sometimes it feels like none of the asset classes know anything about what's coming. And it's just oil that's telling us there's a hard landing in the U.S. So, Rita, for most of this year, we've been talking about geopolitical risk. As uh, various wars still play out, what's the impact of the geopolitics on the price at this stage? Right now, I don't think there's any geopolitical risk premium in prices. I mean, you've seen post the Israel Hamas war, of course, we rallied a little bit, but again, that was also driven by fundamentals. We've come off more since than anything else. I'd say what has helped prices a little bit towards the end of the week is the news around Europe potentially tightening up some of the shipping sanctions around Russia. Um, I still remain quite skeptical around the US sanction side. With the US election coming up, the administration will want to keep oil flowing. Most of this is going to be rhetoric, both around Iran and around Russia. I think that's also why the markets lost interest in geopolitics unless and until there is an actual supply outage. We've seen kind of quote unquote sanctions, but nothing actually coming out of it because they are not meaningful sanctions. Amrita, let me just turn on here. I, I, I hear what you're saying about the risk premium, but what if there is a risk premium built in for geopolitics? What if this is what it looks like? I'm just going to you know, just be the contrarian. It's my job to be contrarian today. I'm arguing with everyone. But what yes, if the sir. risk premium's already in $10, $15 as well, actually? And that's going to put real problems uh, for our friends, uh, Mr. Abdelaziz bin Salman and his cohort over at OPEC, if there is a problem there. Well, if you're saying it's $10, $15 of risk premium, uh, my comeback to you is uh, inventories globally, crude plus products, is about 177 million barrels lower today than end June. And we are kind of trading where we were at end June.
How do you reconcile that? Um, you know, again, inventory drawdowns have been consistent right throughout this year. And if that warrants a $60 oil price or $65 oil price, I think we need to rethink uh, how pricing works, right? I think that's the problem. Um, look, if there is a massive recession coming, sure, prices are going to go down. But I, A, we don't think that. Like I said, our forecasts don't uh, show that. Inventories across the board, oil product stocks, gasoline, diesel, are at record lows again. So that in itself tells you that we don't have a buffer for prices to go down too much, because if it does, then again, we just don't have stocks. And final point is, I do think OPEC Plus are very, um, very determined to make sure this is not a repeat of 2020 and they want to keep the market balanced because that is ultimately, that has been their objective. Prince Abdulaziz has been very, very clear on that. I don't think that policy is changing at all. So I think that's why as well, I do think oil prices should be at least in the 80s, if not slightly higher, uh, eventually next year. Oh, I love this conversation. I would come back at you with your um, spare capacity, your, your inventory levels, and I'd come back on this. We haven't got time, by the way. I'm doing it anyway. Uh, we, with the spare capacity, uh, NASA, I think, is saying they've got three billion uh, million barrels a day themselves over at Saudi, let alone the rest of them out there. So anyway, I, I can't redo this any longer because I've got to move on. Uh, next time, come around the desk and I won't let you go. So I there will, you go. I will. <laughs> <laughs> lovely to see you. We, we always learn something. Thanks. A real yeah. pleasure. Amrita Sen, founder and director of research at Energy Aspects as well. Well, coming up on the show, Arabile. Well, Steve, we're hunting for votes, right? The UK Chancellor puts the finishing touches to Wednesday's autumn statement, ruling out any tax cuts that could fuel inflation. Javier Milei is storms to victory in Argentina's presidential runoff as the country takes a surprise shift to the right. Jumana will join us throughout the morning for that one. And after the chaos in the Las Vegas Grand Prix, we'll get the latest on the world of Formula E. As we speak to CEO Jeff Dodds, don't miss that. It's a first on CNBC conversation. It's at 7.30 CET. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back. A quick look at this week, then we're in for what is said to be another busy week as earnings then, of course, do continue across today uh, and the rest of this week then, particularly out of the United States uh, as well. We'll get results from Zoom later today, then Lowe's, Best Buy, HP, as well as the big one of NVIDIA. That's set to come out then on Tuesday. On Wednesday, Tyson Krab comes out with their numbers, so too Kingfisher numbers, which are set to be released then. The latest Fed minutes, well, those are also due out tomorrow following cooling inflation data, which came out last week, of course, uh, quite significantly. The market reacting to that, and you saw that continued jump then in the indices. Investors looking for signs that the central bank may have finished its hiking cycle. The market perhaps pricing in a lot of that already. The OECD set to release its economic outlook. That's set to come out then uh, on Wednesday. While we'll get flash PMIs across Europe then coming out on Thursday with German GDP rounding out the week. That's on the data front. 
It's also a busy week on the macro front there as we look ahead to the UK's autumn statement. That's said to be released on Wednesday, as well as an election in the Netherlands. Thursday is Thanksgiving out in the United States before, of course, Black Friday rounds off the week, guys. Uh, yes, <laughs> feels like Black Friday has been with us for a long time as well. And um, I made a bit of a boo-boo on that one, but I'll, I'll come back to that a little bit later on. Less interesting for our viewers. Uh, UK Chancellor of the Exchequer Jeremy Hunt has said he will not. I like this line. He will not implement tax cuts that fuel inflation. Well, that's very, very clever of him that he can actually implement tax cuts at the same time as not fueling inflation. What, what, what a magician he is if he does that. Anyway, Mr Hunt told our sister channel, Sky News, that whilst everything is on the table for Wednesday's autumn statement, he doesn't mean everything, does he? Anyway, he won't introduce measures that would undermine progress against price pressures, which, of course, uh, the government's trying to get the credit for, even though it's the Bank of England's job to sort it out. Another issue. Uh, inflation has halved since the start of the year, but September's quarterly GDP figure came in flat. Uh, public debt is up by a mere more than £100 billion over that period. The ruling Conservatives are under pressure in the polls, only about 20 percentage points behind so far, uh, with the opposition Labour Party running at double-digit gains. Sylvia Amaro, no responsible, historically conservative Chancellor of the Exchequer would possibly think about tax cuts from an economic point of view, where our debt-to-GDP is circa 100% and our interest payment on our government gilts has gone through the roof as well. Surely no government would find any rationale to be cutting taxes in this environment. But look at the polls. You just mentioned 20 ah. percentage points that they are that Labour is ahead of the Conservatives. And therein lies the problem. So we shouldn't give politicians the responsibility for running the economy. <laughs> well, they do have a lot of responsibility when running the economy. But of course, we cannot forget the political calendar here. We have a, a, an election in the United Kingdom that needs to happen before the end of 2024. And of course, the Conservative government is having that in mind when preparing this autumn budget. But let's essentially focus on what we've heard so far. On Wednesday, the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, will be announcing details of the UK's next budget. And of course, there is here a huge focus on tax cuts. When we actually look at the economic context at this stage for the UK economy, there's, of course, the bad and the good news. The bad news are, of course, we're still dealing with high interest rates. And according to Deutsche Bank, there's a risk of recession in the coming quarters. At the same time, the good news are actually the household spending has been higher than expected business investment as well. And at the same time, a key number here, public sector net borrowing has actually been $25 billion, uh, British pounds, I should say, lower than expected. So there's some fiscal room here for the chancellor when preparing this autumn statement. But as we've discussed later, uh, early I should say, when he spoke to Sky News, he made the comment that he's going to be responsible about this and he's not going to announce tax cuts that could indeed fuel inflation. I'm not going to talk about any individual tax cuts. You wouldn't expect me to just no, but a few days before. No, but taxes on work. Here, here is the principle. There is a big dividing line between the Conservative Party and the Labour Party because we believe lower taxes are essential for a high-growth economy. So we do want to bring down the tax burden, but we will only do so responsibly. Now, you've just been talking about the fact we've halved inflation. The one thing we won't do is any kind of tax cut that fuels inflation. We've done all this hard work. We're not going to throw that away. So that was Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Let's see indeed what uh, he will announce on Wednesday. A lot of focus on what he will present then. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. 
For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.